Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a solutions-oriented podcast and live radio show. Each broadcast, we dedicate just about 30 minutes to explore topics of interest for leaders and professionals in education and a variety of other disciplines. And this is your host, Brian Perkins. So welcome back, everybody. I am really excited tonight. This is a pre-recorded broadcast from earlier today, but I am so excited to share with you someone who is a consultant and a best-selling author, someone who has been uh, recognized as an expert in the field in DEI and just an organizational uh, specialist, uh, organizational development specialist, founder of her own firm, BWG Business Solutions, and is a DEI consultant extraordinaire. So I just want to welcome um, tonight, uh, today's author, uh, Dr. Janice Gossam Asari. Welcome, Janice. Thank you so much, Dr. Perkins. Brian, how are you? It's so I, nice to, to I, chat with you again. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for being here. You know, as I told you, your time goes by so fast. So I'm going to jump right in. And I want to, I want, because I, I really wanted to share you with people in my, uh, you know, kind of network. And you have so many people that follow you. Um, so you're many places that you contribute as an author. And so I know that there are a lot of people that listen to you on different platforms. Um, and so I first, before you even get, we have so many things to cover in, uh, in a short amount of time. But before we even get to your book, I'm so impressed with your your background um, and the work that you've done. So I'd love to know first, how did you discover this area that you have become such an expert in and recognized in, in DEI? What made you decide to, to go into this area? That's a, that's a good question. I, I don't know if I ever really like knew what DEI, I know DEI is a fairly new term, but like diversity and inclusion and even diversity, I don't think it was something that was ever like the at the top of my mind. And when I was in my master's program, I got my master's in industrial organizational psychology. In my cognitive psychology class, we had to write a paper. And I think that was the first time that I was like, I really am interested and intrigued by bias because my whole paper was on unconscious bias yeah. and how our brain processes things and processes bias. And I completely forgot that I wrote this paper until I was looking through my emails and I was looking through old emails and I saw an email from that I, with the paper that I had sent myself. And I was like, wow, I was writing about this back in like when I was in, like, I, I didn't remember that. And then when I got to my, into my PhD program and they asked, what do you want to study? You know, I knew I wanted to study race and that was like my thing. And it was interesting because I didn't end up writing my dissertation on race. And part of the reason was because I was nervous that my dissertation committee would, you know, they, there was some pushback with me studying. Back then, it was more novel to like manipulate race in LinkedIn pictures. And I wanted to see if like manipulating race and gender influenced the person's likelihood to get a job. And now we know about that data but back then it was like more interesting and novel yeah. and when you know they asked what is your focus I was like I didn't know what it was called so I was like diversity 
And there was no one in my university that really specialized in that. So it, it's been a long road to kind of figure out like how, you know, how this field, how to enter the field. I always knew I had an interest in it. And maybe as a black woman, just navigating the America, I feel like I, I have a natural interest in, in equity and inclusion. So I think that that's probably like my my origin story of how I really started to get interested in the field. Sure, sure. Well, I, you know, my my whole introduction to you actually was through LinkedIn, as you know. Um, I I saw you, and then I started reading some of the work that you had posted on LinkedIn, and really, like as I said at the beginning, really impressed by uh, your ideas. And I remember, I think what caught my attention was um, a small section you had, you, you spent some time talking about hair in, and that uh, in, the, in the workplace. And it may have been around the time that the Crown Act was either being, being discussed and, and what have you. And, and so not only you, but a number of other people, I started to read more about just the level of discrimination that people were faced just around hair alone. Uh, one, one thing that really caught me that you, you just mentioned that I know I personally had struggled with and it had been, it's been around papers or otherwise, but just the idea that even a long time, I won't even say a long time ago, fairly short time ago, really speaking, that people weren't talking about things like discrimination based on hair, but that we could have these conversations quite openly, whether it was colorism, hair texture, or what have you, I, I'm going to venture to say just in the common place talking about these matters in the last 10, 15 years. Not before that, it was somewhat taboo. And what I, I, I think about is even as I have talked to some of my colleagues, I, I have some really dear friends that have said to me things like, don't be apologetic for that story. You know, that that's the way it is, go ahead and tell the story. And so I commend you also for the way you have kind of boldly stepped into those spaces and and um, and taken on those topics. So, um, you know, just thinking about, I want, I want to jump into, um, you know, thinking about um, your book. I know your book came out in, in October. Uh, love to hear a little bit more um, about what, why this topic and why now? Uh, but I, I remember when I invited you, I think my first invitation for you to come to our campus at Teachers College and speak was back in August. And you told me then that your book was coming out in October and maybe somewhere around that time, October, November, um, would be a good time to actually uh, uh, come and do a, do, do a talk. So um, let's talk a little bit about the book. So give me a kind of uh, overview of what the book, um, what your intention was, who you were trying to reach, and and what you know what the real uh, overall objective was for the book. Yeah. So um, the book, Decentering Whiteness in the Workplace, I really thought it was an important book because 
um, I published two other books, self-published them before. And I felt like a lot of, even my own books, I felt like a lot of DEI books didn't get to the crux of the matter and didn't really, they kind of danced around this issue of whiteness and how whiteness is a system. And I've read books on, you know, I think we've all read Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist, but there was this book that I read um, and I interviewed the author in 2020, Layla Sayad. She's a New York Times bestselling author and she wrote Me and White Supremacy. And so in her book, she talked about white supremacy within society and our relationship to it. But when I was doing my research, I saw that there wasn't any book specifically on like whiteness and white culture in the workplace. And so since my background is in like workplace psychology, that was something that was really interesting to me is just like thinking about our concepts of like things like professionalism and, you know, what it means to show up in the workplace, but be operating in this system of whiteness that we don't even really talk about. And the editor who actually found me, you know, I think every writer, it's a cool dream to, to have a book published through a publisher. And the editor that found me, he had reached out to me in 2020 because of an article I wrote about the DEI training ban. And so he was like, do you have any book ideas? I'm an editor of this company. And I just, I didn't really have any ideas then that I, I felt like were good. And then he reached out again in 2022. And at that point, you know, he's like, you've written a lot of articles. What articles of yours or what topics are interesting to readers? Because you have millions of people who've read your articles. And I was like, usually topics on, on the black community specifically, and then topics on whiteness and white supremacy. And so in talking with him and doing my research, I was like, there's no book on whiteness in the workplace. And so I did my research and there's books on whiteness and veganism, whiteness in, in other industries, but not specifically the workplace. And I think the workplace, everyone is so like buttoned up and nobody really wants to have like conversations on these topics that people think are controversial. So I was like, I'm going to write a book on on whiteness. And when it came time to choose the title, we put out a poll and the most popular title was Decentering Whiteness in the Workplace. And, you know, in writing this book, I knew that I'm I'm not going to win. You know, I'm not going to get on bestseller lists. Sure. I'm not, I have colleagues and friends that are, you know, on the Wall Street Journal bestsellers list, New York Times bestselling authors. And I just knew with a book like this and a title like this, people would... It, it might not r resonate with people and it might rub them the wrong way, but my ultimate goal is like to get the message out. And so if that means I had to, had to sacrifice like book sales or notoriety, I felt like the overall goal was like, we need to be talking about whiteness as a system and how it impacts the workplace. And so what, what I wanted people to take away from this book is that one, whiteness is a system. And Dr. Perkins, it's so interesting because I think I thought that that was basic and very like elementary, but there's so many people that will come to my LinkedIn or come to my social media and say, I'm trying to get rid of white people, right? And that's the implication and what they think. And I'm like, whiteness, even in the absence of white people, whiteness as a system is still promoted and propagated. And so I, I really want people to understand that whiteness is a system and in every organization in some way, whiteness is centered. And so I want people to walk away from the book feeling like I have the tools to understand 
how to decenter whiteness in my workplace. Yeah, and and I think what's really important to me that I just heard is that this is not about some kind of discrimination, like certainly uh, let's get rid of white people in, in workplaces or in occupational settings, um, not that at all, but recognizing that whiteness is, as I have read and heard from you previously, so it's it's the, there's there's the the overwhelming ethos of what's right, what's the way to be, is the whiteness construct, right? And so, if we that could very well uh, another uh, ness <laughs> could take its place, but we're talking about decentering is about um, not having one culture represented as the standard, as the you know, like the the marquee uh, mm -hmm. pinnacle of what what is right and what we should model. As mm -hmm. I understand it, is that correct? Absolutely, yeah. And and someone had asked me a really interesting question about whether I think the topics of the book can translate into other countries. And I said that that's interesting because whiteness is different in the U.S. Yes. compared to other places around the world. But we understand the system of whiteness and it's global, right? When we think about whiteness and how it operates, you can take what's in the book, right, and go to a place like France, for example, and you still see those same things. I was recently in France speaking with Black employees specifically to understand their experiences. And what's so interesting is that Aside from the fact that in France, they can't collect racial and ethnic data, uh, everything is, is pretty much the same, right? The experiences of Black employees are very similar to what Black employees in, in the U.S. experience. And so I think that whiteness, the system is global. It just maybe how we categorize ourselves is different. And the concept of whiteness, right, when you go to maybe somewhere like Netherlands, they might not see you as you know, a black person, they might see you as an Ethiopian, or they might see you based on your ethnicity versus your race. But I think the concept of whiteness is it translates outside of the US. Sure, sure. So, so tell me, give me an example of how um, whiteness from your from your experience is centered or has been centered just an example of I know it won't encompass all the ways, but just one thing that you've seen is as an, as an example of whiteness being centered. Yeah, there's there's so many examples. I think any any workplace's experiences when you're evaluating job candidates, I think it shows up a lot in you know something as subtle as you know when you're looking at somebody's resume or their their job application. Um, aside from the name, we all know there's name discrimination. But even a person's email address, right? If I see that you are affiliated with an elite institution, I'm going to have a certain perception of you as a um, as a job candidate versus your counterparts. And what's really interesting is that a lot of companies have these requirements, you know, that are, you know, you need to have this, you need to have that. But a lot of it for people from underrepresented racial groups, we don't often have the same opportunities for internships, the same opportunities to attend certain institutions. And so in having these sort of credentials and criteria that are required but not necessary to do the job, you're subtly pushing out 
non-white candidates from being able to be qualified for those those roles. And one of my family members works at in the DC Metro system. And she said that that's a problem that they have where they have on the job ad, they have all of these requirements. You need to have a master's in this. You need to have come from a university, you know, that, you know, is an expert in engineering. Yeah. Yeah. You have to come from like a top university in your field. That's what it's called. Mm -hmm. um, and all of these things. And she's like, when you get into the role, people are like, you don't really need I didn't need this, all of these requirements, but what it does is it helps to justify keeping certain populations of people out because they're less likely to have those certain credentials and criteria. And so I think in the job search process, that's really subtle. I see it a lot in um, the interview process, mm -hmm. right? When we're interviewing people and I've served on um, uh, hiring panels within the institutions that I've worked at in the past. And it's, it's so interesting because without the, in the absence of a rubric and scorecards, it's, we're all going to be going based on our biases. So if, if I'm, if I receive a group of curriculum vitae or resumes, and I'm told pick whoever you think is best, I'm more than likely going to pick the candidate. You know, at the end of the day, a lot of these people that I was picking, there wasn't a lot of diversity within the stack of, of people. And so I think it's like so subtle it's ne it's never a hiring manager saying, I'm not going to hire Dr. Perkins because he's Black. No one ever says that. People know you can't say that. But it's more subtle. It's, you know, it's the fact that I can, in a job interview, I might not, you know, like the fact that you went to a historically Black college or university. And I might say, you know what? I don't know if she's qualified, right? She went to Howard. But compared to our other candidates that are at Harvard, I don't know if that really stacks up. And so I think that it's so subtle the ways that whiteness is centered in the workplace that it's easy not to notice it. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And and certainly uh, with, with all that we have seen, particularly now in this uh, political season, you hear a lot of the buzzwords uh, happening and and where, like you just said, the standard of what is right, where you went to school. But what what is so interesting, though, is that um, you also hear when people check, like all of the check boxes, and I've seen you, you've written about um, the situation, we could go on for the rest of the day talking about the Harvard situation with Dr. Uh, Claudine Gay, and, and that all of these check boxes, you can go all the way back to a high school experience, and the check, <laughs> right, like it was, it's just all there and in place, and so here we go. What is it that we can talk about? And that happened. Uh, it happens a lot where people um, people um, find things that they want to serve as a cutoff for mm -hmm. for certain groups. And so, um, no, that's that's great. That's a great example of how whiteness is uh, is centered. Um, now, one thing I do want, I know, as I told you, see, time is going so fast. Mm -hmm. um, I do want to talk about, though, um, where when when we first agreed that you were going to come and do your your talk, like I said, little did we know that there would be people on 
um, in on the national media circuit that would bring your name up and say things about, like just looking at the title and deciding they knew what the book was about. Mm -hmm. and and even out of one of the presidential candidates miles mm -hmm. uh, talking about what you said and it went on and on and one thing that i'm really proud about after you and i had a conversation and we remember we we talked about should we wait for this thing to kind of cool down should we wait and i went to the the administration at my university here, Teachers College, Columbia University, and I said, uh, "Here's here's what we're faced with," and and um and so this author is concerned about her safety, as she very well should be, and so forth. And the response I got was overwhelmingly that they hoped that we could uh kind of assure you that we would do everything in our power to make sure you were safe, but that the message should go heard, make sure that you were heard and that it wouldn't um, be, be tamped down because people were making these threats. And we went on with it anyway, and it was well-received and people um, really applauded your, your effort. Um, how has that felt for you though, that this, what you put your, your, your kind of blood, sweat and tears into something that that you you are proud of and people have given you a real um you know pat on the back for that there's this segment of the population that are saying things like you 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 know you deserve punishment for doing this and so how does that feel and and for you and what's your plan going forward yeah, I I was surprised. I mean, I think initially because of the well the the good reception that I was receiving when the book came out, I thought like, oh, people are pretty progressive because just in 2019, 2018, when I was consulting, companies were telling me, "We don't want you to talk about white supremacy." Mm -hmm. So, I was thinking that that was still the same sort of climate. But of course, after the murder of George Floyd, I think people really opened up to con these conversations. So I was a little surprised because when the book came out, I think it was getting good reception. Um, but I wasn't that surprised, right? I think any any of us who are engaged in this work, we know that there's always going to be opposition. And so I've kind of gotten used to it. And I, I wrote an article about how the ebbs and flows of progress have gone in the US, right? And how anytime there's any sort of progress for marginalized people, there's this white lash, right? There was this great book by Carol Anderson called White Lash. And in the book, it talked about these types of things where we know that in 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, but the last enslaved people weren't free until 1865. And in 1865 also was the start of the KKK. And so we see when there's progress, seeming progress, there's also this white lash. And so the same thing happened when Barack Obama was elected. They did some sort of study in 2012, and they found that anti-Black sentiments rose significantly after his first uh, presidency. And so I think that this is just the natural progression of things where we were talking about anti-Blackness, we were talking about white supremacy and whiteness in 2020. And now we see that there is this 
the tide is turning and things are shifting. And so I think we, you know, we see the conversation that Elon Musk has brought up where he says DEI is needs to die. Right. And so I think that I refuse to believe that this work is, is dying or is not important because as long as we have people who come from different places coming together in one environment, we're always going to need this, this work. I think that there's always improvements that can be made. I don't think the space is perfect, but I'm, I'm, I think that the backlash that is coming is just proof that this work is so important, right? Cause if everyone agreed with this, then it would be great for me because it, then it's like, oh, I don't need to do this anymore. <laughs> sure. But it just kind of confirms, okay, this is why I do this work because I don't want the future generations to live in a world where people are still thinking the way that they're thinking now. Yeah, yeah, thank you. So I, I, I have a lot of people who are in leadership roles uh, across a variety of disciplines who are listening in, eavesdropping on our conversation. So what would be kind of the big take home you have for them uh, for how as practitioners in leadership, they might start the work? I mean, number one, I'm gonna say, start by getting your book, Decentering Whiteness in the yeah. Workplace. But what what is the first or second step, if you will, to uh, making this a reality for their workplaces? Yeah, and that's a great question. In one of the uh, chapters at the end of the book, I have like a model for decentering whiteness. And in the middle of the model is where whiteness is centered. And then as you move out, it's the active process of whiteness being decentered. And so the first piece of it, I think, is the awareness piece. And so getting the book or inviting people to educate you or learning from from people about the ways that whiteness is so pervasive in the workplace. But I also think it's important to pick one area of the workplace that might be your your recruitment and your hiring, or it could be your promotion and advancement process, or it could be your mentorship program. So pick um, one specific area in the workplace and I think focus on decentering whiteness there because when you look at the workplace as a whole it can feel really daunting because it's like oh my gosh like it's like when you enter a space and it's like there's you know it's it's messy let's say and there's things everywhere it's like what should I clean first I think focusing on one area is is helpful because once you get that momentum then it's easier to look at other areas and other systems in the workplace and focus on that so I think looking at and assessing maybe you're a HR professional or maybe you're a manager and you have control over the advancement and promotion process. So thinking about ways that you can make that process more equitable, right? Do you utilize things like a calibration process where you're not just evaluating candidates, um, their job performance, you're speaking with other managers who are doing the evaluations yeah. and you're discussing those evaluations which, which can mitigate bias when it's just one person saying, mm, you know, I, I think Dr. Perkins, I don't like Dr. Perkins, so I'm not going to give, you know, a good evaluation. So I think that there's, it's important to focus on one area. What is that saying? Um, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? And I think the same can be true for decentering whiteness in the workplace. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. So listen, I know you have a number of places that you, uh, you publish please share with people who are listening in um, where they can follow you, listen to podcasts, 
on Reed. I know you've been uh, uh, a regular contributor to Forbes. How many articles are through Forbes? Uh, I, I at four hundred. I stopped counting, but yeah. I'm gonna count, I'm gonna count <laughs> again because awesome. once I hit five hundred, it'll be a okay. Cool. Awesome. That is awesome. I mean, that is a major accomplishment. So, where can people support you? Uh, listen in and and just know uh, about the great work that you're doing. Um, definitely, if anyone listening is on LinkedIn, I'm active on LinkedIn probably more than other uh, social media. I try to stay off Twitter because that's <laughs> where all of the trolls come and yeah. yeah. find me. Um, so I would definitely say uh, LinkedIn. And then I also have a podcast called the Dirty Diversity Podcast. So anywhere you listen to podcasts, that podcast is available. Um, and then you can definitely find my writing on Forbes. If you just search uh, Janice Gassamasari, you'll see my articles pop up. And um, yeah, so those are the places where you can find me regularly. I have, you know, you mentioned the topic of hair discrimination. I have a article that I'm really proud of in the Harvard Business Review about hair discrimination. And it's actually their first article out of all the, I don't know how many articles have been published in Harvard Business Review over the past decades. They've never had an article specifically on hair discrimination. So I was really happy that that's something that could be written and people can read about for years to come. Yes, yes. excellent. Thank you. And listen, I, I, I can't Thank you enough for coming on. Um, we, you know, we're so thankful to have you also joining us uh, at Teachers College as a member of the adjunct faculty this upcoming summer. Uh, so gonna learn more from you then and there, uh, but I will definitely see you around. Uh, and until then, go well, stay well. Thank you so much, Dr. Perkins. Have an amazing rest of your day. Thank you.